Welcome to episode 93 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Kimberly Feldman, and with me today are Lori Norris and Dr. Keisha Allen. Hello, Lori and Keisha. Hi, Kim. Hi. Let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the podcast, and we'll have Keisha share a little bit more because she is a guest panelist. Lori, you want to get us started? Thank you. Um, My name is Laurie Norris, and I am a perpetual grad student here at UGA, and my focus is uh, rhetoric and pop culture stuff. I'm a specialist in television studies, um, and I have a cat. I think that says an awful lot about me. (laughs) Hi, everyone. I'm Keisha McIntosh Allen, Dr. Keisha McIntosh Allen, an assistant professor at University of Maryland, Baltimore County, where I teach educational foundations and literacy uh, courses through an equity lens um, in the secondary education program where I met Kim. Um, And my research examines culturally relevant um, or responsive teaching. Um, And I'm currently working on an article that examines the role of spirituality in critical multicultural teacher education. So um, I didn't even know about that. Yes. (laughs) So thank you for inviting me um, to participate in this podcast because it's in alignment with what I've been thinking about. Thank you. And I'm Kim and I am a, an instructor and I work with uh, pre-service teachers out in the field at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And I just finished my PhD in language literacy and culture. Yay! <laughs> yes, uh, and I currently live here in Baltimore with my husband and two children, and my husband is a pastor of a small Southern Baptist church here in the area. So I yeah, want to go ahead. that um, I'm a mom also. <laughs> yes, that's an important yeah, part of your identity. Yeah, it's very important to me. I have a four-year-old son named Kai, and I'm expecting... Um, a little girl, uh, December 17th-ish. Oh, um, wow. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that is an important part of my identity. And another reason why I'm really grateful that you're willing to do this. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to go ahead and introduce our topic for today. A series of events beginning with the Baltimore Uprising in 2015 uh, following the death of Freddie Gray and continuing through the 2016 election and the events at Charlottesville have left many white Christians wondering how to best respond to the racial tension that has again surfaced in our country. Some have pushed back on the Black Lives Matter movement by emphasizing that all lives matter. Others have chosen not to get involved by claiming a desire to not get too political while others have actively looked for ways to promote racial healing, reconciliation, and justice in their churches and their communities. Meanwhile, there have also been indications that black Christians are leaving predominantly white churches, feeling uncomfortable with the church's response or lack thereof to recent racial injustice in our country. 
The Christian Feminist Podcast addressed some of these issues on episode 66 about another podcast called Truth's Table. That was one of my favorite episodes, and I began listening to Truth's Table because of it. In listening to Truth's Table and contemplating these issues, I am continually brought back to questions about the role that we should play as white Christian women in seeking racial justice, especially in light of the fact that black women have historically been marginalized in both the civil rights movement and the women's liberation movements. So I have a lot of questions like how can we best be allies to our sisters of color? How do we avoid a savior mentality? What role can and should we play in things like the black lives? Lives Matter movement. Uh, during this time, I came across the book Waking Up White by De Debbie Irving and the podcast by Micah Edmondson that I thought might be a good backdrop for this discussion. And before we go any further, I do want to echo something that uh, Victoria Reynolds Farmer, one of our founding podcast panelists, said in episode 66. She talked about the importance of listening with humility to our sisters of color, to be open to letting their experiences and perspectives inform and challenge our white ways of thinking and our assumptions. She also acknowledged the challenge that we face as a podcast, having all white panelists. We recognize the need for greater representation of all women on our panels and want to remedy that, but we also want to avoid tokenism. We don't want to burden anyone with having to speak or represent their race. That said, I am very excited and grateful to have Keisha here with us today. First of all, because she was willing to step in at the very last minute for another guest panelist who couldn't uh, participate, and also because I really value her voice and her perspective and her expertise, and I uh, think it will be valuable for our conversation today. So with all of that said, uh, Keisha, can you give us a little bit of historical background on the Black Lives Matter movement? Sure. Um, so the Black Lives Matter movement was um, really in response to um, the 2013 acquittal of George Zimmerman, um, who um, was a neighborhood watch person um, in Florida who confronted and subsequently shot um, Trayvon Martin, a 17-year-old teenager um, who was walking home <clears throat> to his father's house um, from a convenience store. And so um, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cal Coolers and Opal Tometi, um, who is an immigration activist, um, founded Black Lives Matter um, as an as um, what they say on the website, an ideological and political intervention in a world where Black lives are systematically and intentionally targeted um, for demise. It's an affirmation of Black folks' contributions to society, our humanity, and our resilience in the face of deadly oppression. Um, and so really, um, Black Lives Matter was, you know, created as a way to reaffirm Black humanity, um, to denounce anti-Black racism, and to promote the social, economic, and political liberation of Black people. Um, and I, I just wanted to also point out that with the founders and many of, um, I guess, the chapter leaders in Black Lives Matter, um, they have varied... Um, identities, um, so racial and sexual orientation uh, identities. And so really Black Lives Matter is, um, they have an intersectional, um, they take an intersectional approach to, um, to equity. So um, while race might be at the forefront, um, they're also inclusive of um, 
uh, transgendered and um, uh, lesbian and gay um, um, people who are interested in um, in fighting, who have the same mission or the same commitment to social justice. Um, so yeah, I think that that's um, a big picture overview of uh, Black Lives Matter. Some of the guiding principles um, that they have are diversity, restorative justice, globalism. Um, they're queer affirming, affirming um, unapologetically Black collective value, um, empathy, loving engagement, transgender affirming. Um, they're guided by um, a commitment to Black villages, Black women, Black families, um, and then intergenerational, which is um, important to recognize that young people, as well as more seasoned, um, <laughs> have things to contribute to the movement. Thank you. So I want to give each of us a quick chance in this knowing section of the podcast to kind of share our own personal experiences with confronting racism in our personal, professional, or church life, um, and any experiences that we have uh, with Black Lives Matter in particular. Um, so I will go ahead and start real quick just to share that my for my personal uh, inter interaction with uh, issues of confronting racism, I've had, first of all, a lot of opportunities through my professional life uh, as preparing pre-service teachers to go into teaching. Uh, it's been a, a big emphasis in our department to focus on culturally responsive teaching. Uh, we've offered a lot of um, experiences for our interns and for the community, having guest speakers and workshops. I've gone into schools to talk about the importance of having diverse teachers. Uh, it's become a personal mission of mine is to try to increase the pipeline of teachers of color uh, to go into the profession. And uh, I've also had opportunities to confront racism um, in my personal life as a mom in our school district. Uh, there have been several things that have gone on at my daughter's elementary school, which I love. The teachers there are wonderful, um, but they sometimes uh, don't, and I don't blame them. They have such little time um, to reflect on their practice, but there are things that go on at the school where I feel like there's some kind of blind spots about uh, race and representation. And so I've had the opportunity to work with teachers on, they they do something called Colonial Day, which I recognize is problematic um, in and of itself. But uh, I worked with another mom to redo the curriculum for that, uh, to make it more representative of all the people living in America at that time. Uh, and I've also helped uh, more recently with an, a situation that's gone on at my children's school related to the Arab American community. Um, so uh, I've had opportunities in both my professional and my personal life. My church is very supportive of these things. Um, we have had day-long workshops both in our church and through our uh, the Baptist convention here in Maryland. Uh, however, it's not as much as a, of an emphasis um, on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis at our church as it is in my work or even in my personal life, which is something that 
I'm interested in talking about how to move that more to the forefront of the church life, um, particularly because I, it is a predominantly white church. It's the least diverse part of my whole life. Uh, I live in a very diverse neighborhood. My kids go to a diverse school. I work in a very diverse university. <laughs> um, but I do not, our church is not a very diverse place. And that is um, a point of concern for me. Uh, what about you, Lori? Um, I, in, in response mostly to like Debbie Irving's piece, and we'll get into this, but I feel really fortunate that I grew up in a multicultural, uh, well, not a multicultural family. We're all white in, in my immediate family, but a multicultural area and was constantly around people who were different for me. So some of this uh, confrontation of, of self that, that we'll be talking about, I got to skip some of those parts. But um, for me, my relationship to understanding my whiteness really started um, about 15 years ago, the first time I got to go to Africa. And I was there on a mission trip knowing full well that I can't build anything. I have no construction skills. And so the, the one thing that I can do really well is stand around and just be myself. Turns out that's actually what they wanted. We were in Liberia and they just wanted white people to come in to show that, hey, it's safe because it was the end of a 25 year long civil war. And the reason we were ended up going to Liberia is because a lot of refugees from that country and specifically from the area in Monrovia um, that we ended up at, uh, those refugees ended up in my hometown and the church I grew up in had a really large African population to the point that um, we're Methodist, United Methodist, to the point that uh, I heard somewhere that my the church I grew up in was the largest black church in the conference simply because it was kind of it was a large church and we had a massive African um, population. So that, that's always been weird to me that I grew up in a black church and I'm a very white person. Uh, now I here in Athens, I felt really compelled to actively engage in, in anti-racist behaviors and anti-racist as I don't want to say actions because I just said actively and I am enough of a grammar nerd to not like repeating the verb that way, but yes, but it, it, most of it, my, um, the, the, the spur I felt was in response to the 2016 election and how I felt betrayed by Christians for voting for someone who I thought represents the exact opposite of what we're called to be as, as followers of Christ. And so I, I went on a search for a church here in Athens that I could attend and found one that um, lists in their welcome statement, we welcome all people regardless of age, color, race, ethnic, back, ethnic background, immigration status, economic status, marital status, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, involvement with the criminal justice system, struggles with addiction, physical and mental challenges, or education level. And I've sort of tried my best to take 
that welcome, that radical hospitality into my own life and how I, how I deal with people, how I approach situations and how I can improve my relationship to people who are other than me and actively use what power I have in order to lift people up as, as the saying goes. Thanks, Laurie. Keisha, can you share a little bit about your uh, experiences confronting racism? Sure. Um, so we've already established uh, that I'm a <laughs> Um, but I grew up in um, the very segregated Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I want to, um, you know, to say that, um, you know, given the recent shooting that um, in Pittsburgh, that you know there was this picture um, painted that that uh, Pittsburgh was um, has always been an inclusive and um, an inclusive space. And my experience was not that growing up. Um, so I remember, um, being in Girl Scouts and none, and I really, really, really wanted to be in Girl Scouts so badly that I had decided after school one day that I was going to, um, that I was going to stay after school without telling my mom, um, and join the on my own. Um, and so she signed me up. And um, so I was really excited. And no one wanted to be my partner um, because I was the only black girl um, mm. there. And so I was very, from a young age, very aware of my difference um, and not wanting um, not wanting my own children to experience um, what I experienced, particularly once uh, my family moved out to the suburbs. Um, into an even more um, predominantly white space in high school um, where I often felt alienated. And so, you know, really my commitment to culturally um, responsive and relevant teaching comes from my own educational experiences um, and feeling like I had to um, hide who I am or to kind of alter who I am um, to fit in and to be successful academically. Um, but I'm also reminded of a quotation by Mostef, who is a hip hop um, artist. Um, and he says that my presence speaks volumes um, before I say a word. And so really, like just me being in the spaces where I am um, really is an act of um, resistance. So yeah. there aren't very many um women of color in academia there uh, we often in education talk about how um there aren't very many teachers of color on K through 12 but also in higher education and so um me being there um is an act of resistance <clears throat> um so i think that that's you know pretty much like my big my big um i guess picture <laughs> yeah I, you know, interact or confront racism on a daily basis. Absolutely. Um, I know I'm grateful when you are in those spaces <laughs> because I feel like uh, your presence is very much needed in those spaces. So I want to move into our reading section and we'll be talking about Debbie Irving's Waking Up White as well as a podcast by Micah Edmondson. Uh I'll give a little bit of quick background on 
Debbie Irving and, and uh, a quick overview of the book. Debbie, Debbie Irving is a white woman who was raised in upper middle class society in the Connecticut suburbs during the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, she was incredibly sheltered and insulated from the racial tensions of that time and was surprised by the racial disparity she became aware of as she grew older and moved to Boston. From 1984 to 2009, she worked in urban neighborhoods and schools to increase access to fine arts and performing arts for inner city youth. Um, and she put that in quotes in her book, Inner City Youth. During that time, she was intensely interested in understanding issues of inequality. She attended many different diversity workshops, but she was very frustrated with how ineffective her work was. Uh, it wasn't until she went back to school in her late 40s interestingly, to become a teacher, that she took a course on racial identity that helped her finally understand what she had been missing. That course opened her eyes to her own racial identity, to white privilege and systemic racism, and specifically it helped her to understand how unequal access to the benefits of the GI Bill and redlining and other policies benefited her while marginalizing others. Uh, she also became aware of how social capital in her life um, and the influences of the dominant white culture kind of benefited her in many ways and inhibited her from her ability to see racism and privilege and her own role in perpetuating racist systems. Uh, so the book is sort of her journey her telling her story. And I appreciated her book for several reasons. Um, one, because it is her story and story is kind of an important piece of uh, feminist pedagogy, uh, sharing your experiences, helping people to realize um, that the personal is political and that our um, individual experiences are actually part of a larger system. Um, it's not very didactic, um, and it's it's not like trying to um, explain or analyze white privilege, uh, but it's her sharing her own story of coming becoming aware of her uh, her privilege, and I feel like it's very authentic and honest, and that she is totally willing to share how naive she was to talk about all of the stupid mistakes that she made. Uh, she. Uh, kind of normalizes that process of awakening, that it's okay to mess up as long as you keep learning. Um, and so I, I really appreciated that on authenticity and her honesty. I also really like the title, Waking Up White, from a literary perspective and kind of a philosophical perspective, um, because it's an ongoing process of awakening. And she's not woke, but she is continually, um, you know, as a white person, I don't know if we can ever be fully woke. Like we have to constantly wake up to our own whiteness and to um, our own white privilege. Uh, personally, I did resonate with her story in many ways. Um, my family was in the South, not in New England. I was born about 20 years after her, and I am uh, was not as wealthy uh, as her family growing up. Uh, and I, but I like her. Um, I never saw people being racist, like saying disparaging things or doing hateful things um, 
towards people of other races. But that was, first of all, partly because I was so insulated from other races. Uh, I was, I grew up in Louisiana and Georgia. Um, I grew up in very isolated, you know, segregated neighborhoods. I, where my neighborhood was all white. My school was almost all white. My classes were all almost all white. Uh, so the very fact of my existence in an almost entirely white space was an example of racism, but I didn't see that because my understanding of racism was saying or doing racist things, um, that I, I never saw growing up. Uh, so I personally, I didn't have any black teachers for my K through 12 experience until my senior year for one semester. I had one black professor in my undergraduate program at UGA, one black professor in my graduate program at UGA, uh, and I think that was detrimental for me um, to not have authority figures in my life from who are people of color. Uh, and when I got to that African American poetry class in my undergraduate program, um, I remember openly having... <laughs> discussions with the professor as he tried to say that racism still existed. And I was like, oh, no, that ended in the 60s with the civil rights movement and Brown versus Board of Education and, you know, totally let him know how he was wrong, uh, which has all kinds of problems that I like. Would I have questioned a white professor in that way? You know, like I it's crazy to think about now. Um, and I did write back to him two years later once I started teaching and tell him he was right about everything. Um, but uh, so I, I learned a lot through my graduate program and as I entered the world of teaching about racism. But it was not until my Ph.D. program that I really started to understand the myth of the meritocracy that she talks about in the book. Um, so nothing in her story was, um, new to me, but somehow it was, um, helpful to me to see someone else's story, um, and to see the parallels with my own story and my own awakening over the past 20 years. And, um, I guess it helps you to see that it's not personal, that it is systemic. Um, so, I wanted to go ahead and open it up for you guys to kind of share um, what are the things in this story that resonated with you or surprised you uh, as you read her story of waking up. Um, if I can jump in, yes. I think, um, and I've, I've mentioned this to you, Kim, off, off the air, uh, I had an actual, like, I had a hard time reading this because my childhood has been so completely different from hers. I did not grow up in a white enclave. In, in fact, my my parents are amused by the story of when I was in kindergarten and first grade. We Well, we moved a lot of times. So one of the places I was in first grade, uh, they did little like musical productions at my daycare center. And I kept getting cast as the lead, even though I, I have no acting talent whatsoever, but it was only because I was the only white kid and I would have stood out dramatically if they didn't like spotlight me anyway. So the idea that you can grow up in a place where no one else looks like where everyone looks like you, that creeped me out. And 
the the just the privilege that she had the the wealth really disturbed me and that's got me thinking about what like my own maybe virtue signaling that I do because for the longest time in my life I thought of myself as poor before I thought of myself as anything else even like even before I, I thought of myself as a woman or I thought certainly as I thought of myself as as white I was always just poor and now I'm I'm having to confront the ways that my my class issues have have strongly influenced me and influenced the the form of white identity that I have and it was a challenge getting over my uh antagonism towards her privilege because I have that punk rock kid eat the rich mentality about well everything in life um and seeing someone be so honest about being so privileged, my immediate response was, um, well, kill it with fire. And that's unhealthy. That's unproductive. But I would not have had to think about the ways that I stereotype people who are wealthy and without confronting that, that, that's, that, classism in a, in a way that I carry with me. And it's got me thinking about the ways that I then mimic my own behavior in, in other forms of bigotry. And I would just like to say, Debbie Irving, you try and say that you can separate class and race and you just talk about race in your book, but then you go on to use almost exclusively economic language to discuss the way that race is systematically uh, like set up in this country. So I want to shake her by the shoulders and say, no, you cannot, you have to understand intersectionality. You can't have one without the other, but uh, thank you, Debbie, for opening my eyes to the way that I am biased against rich people. I appreciate that, Lori. Um, yeah, I think I think that's one of the things too that I get excited about her story because uh, you know she is twenty years older than me and um, from a place of even more wealth and privilege than I grew up in. And uh, to see her waking up to this, I think, gives me hope <laughs> for other yeah. people um, <laughs> that she was yeah. able to come to that realization um, and to be willing to go on that journey. Keisha, did you have any thoughts? Uh, um, <clears throat> this conversation has um, reminded me, um, I want to say it was back um, when schools were um, segregated. Um, and, um, the means by which wealthy white people were able to, um, position and wealthy white people in the North <laughs> were able to position, um, black people as the enemy in the minds of poor, um, white, um, poor white people. Um, and I think that like that kind of you know, continues on today. And so I'm wondering, like, um, it's interesting to think about that dynamic um, of class 
but then also, you know, just wondering with Lori and thinking about your class privilege, like how have you ever thought about um, how even in being um, from a less privileged background than Debbie Irving, um, how um, how race still was functioning, I guess. Yeah. Um... Yeah, and I, I kind of wanted to save some of this for a little oh. bit later, but, uh, like, my personal family history, like, my immediate family is very, like, anti-racist, but I got a large extended family, and it is filled with some nasty people in it, like, some horribly racist people that... Uh, they don't understand that the ways that being overtly and explicitly racist towards black people in their community while also supporting like really wealthy people who want to keep them, right. who, who work against my white right. family members, self-interest as a poor person. Like, I have this weird cognitive dissonance is like, yeah, I, I love you. You are my family. You're, you're a monster. And I want, I want to try and wake them up a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really racist poor people mm. at Christmas. One of the things that, um, this book also kind of highlighted for me and makes me think about, um, you know, looking at her journey, which was a very long process of awakening, um, and looking even at my own journey, which spans the past 20 years. Uh, it's, I think helpful for me to be able to have a little bit more grace for people who um, are not at the same place where I am today to kind of keep remembering um, where I have been. And I think that's another value of storytelling um, and, and to tell our own stories and documenting our own stories, because then I can point to, um, you know, just even thinking about our students in our classes, Keisha, where, Um, sometimes they say things and I'm like, whoa. And then I just have to remember, oh my goodness, I said that same thing when I was 22 years old and seeing, thinking about, okay, well, they're not ready to jump over to this point. How can I help them to jump to the next point of awareness? Right. Yeah. I just wanted to say something quickly about, um, that grace. I'm really happy that you said that. I'm happy that, um, Debbie Irving, um, you know, kind of talks about, you know, having grace um, for yourself. I always start my semesters um, with talking about how difficult it is to to talk about these issues. Um, And we all have stuff to unpack, um, but to really have extend grace to ourselves and to be patient, is is really important because otherwise you know shame can be um all consuming <laughs> and right. it's not productive. um you know there are all kinds and i also you know explained to my students um that there are all kinds of um 
emotions that can come up over the course of the semester, avoidance, um, anger, and that, and I really try to normalize it and, you know, and say that, you know, when that happens, it's okay. <laughs> right. We're going to work through it together as a community. Um, and I think that that's another part that's important is that, um, I think doing this work in community is essential. It's essential for people of color. It's essential for white people um, that you can't really do this work in isolation. And I also think it's important with uh, this discussion to remember that for some of us, we've normalized this conversation about race and for other people, they're not there yet. They're not. I, I sometimes forget that my students might not be as comfortable talking about these things as I am because I happen to be in a workplace and I happen to have a lot of friends who have gone through a lot of uh, workshops, who've gone, who've just kind of normalized this conversation so that I kind of talk about race in ways that I've started to realize make other people super uncomfortable. But I, I think it's a good thing to try to normalize that. So, uh, Lori, do you want to talk a little bit about the later sections of the book about the inner work of recognizing white, like our whiteness and our white privilege? Yeah. Um, oh, my brain just farted. Sorry about that. <laughs> so Irving, the way she sets up her story, she spends a lot of the initial chapters of the book talking about her personal narrative. And it's only towards the back half that she starts to introduce, shall we say, possible avenues for exploring one's own relationship to your racial identity. Um, and I think it's, while I have some issues with, with her text, because I'm I'm a literary scholar first and foremost, so of course I'm going to have issues with her text. I'm, and I'm still a grad student, so I, I get a sick pleasure of tearing somebody else's work apart. Um, in in her ch in her chapter, the dominant white culture, I think this is something that, while I'm not going to hand a copy of this to my racist aunt Sandra and say read this and expect her to wake up. It is, it is really useful to look at some of the things that Irving mentions as values and um, behaviors that are supported by the dominant white culture that we may not realize that we're participating in. And once you kind of realize that, oh, avoiding conflict is a form of privilege, then you can start to think, okay, well, how do I get myself more uncomfortable with things? And how do I get where I am willing to sit in that discomfort for, for longer and longer? Um, she, she asks, so do you not like to rock the boat? Well, maybe you got to work towards getting, I'm comfortable giving honest feedback or something that I think is a struggle for all of us here on this podcast, because we all, we're all academics is I mostly value intellect and that the challenge would then be, how can I appreciate more intuition or what people would maybe call street smarts over, over book smarts? How can I look at the way that I choose to be comfortable and, in a situation and then say, well, this is a risk that I could take in order to, to try and make things better for somebody else. Um, 
it's that I think is one way to start looking like an active practice that you can have to start looking at as a white woman, as a, as a white person, men can do this too, um, is, is looking at your own natural responses to things because the idea that we're going to force the emotional labor of fixing racism onto people of color is just disgusting. So white people participating in dominant white culture, it is our job to dismantle the oppressive systems and institutions that, that we benefit from and built up. And the, really the only way we can do that is, is looking at ourselves. And I would say that we have to foreground in intersectionality at the, at the heart of that, because you can't solve racism without solving class and you can't solve class without solving gender disparities. And I don't, I don't know if you could hear them, but I put, put solving in scare quotes there because, um, the idea that we're going to solve racism, wipe our hands and go about our merry way is, it's really a, a phenomenal joke. Um, so one of the ways that I've kind of personally been doing this because I had the great pr privilege of growing up in a family that valued uh, multiculturalism and diversity is forcing myself to have uncomfortable conversations with those racists in my family. I keep trying. One, one aunt does not seem to understand how Facebook works, but she keeps posting racist and hateful things and then liking my response when I say that's racist and hateful, like, so... Like one of my jobs is not only to tell her, and that is racist, and it's racist because blah blah blah, but also I'm reporting you, I am giving feedback on this post. It's exhausting because she's on Facebook all the time, which means that it's now my responsibility to follow up on her all the time because someone's got to do it, and I'm in that position to do it. It's really exhausting, but it's better that I'm exhausted, right? Than that those posts distri get distributed because it's little and it probably is useless in the long run, but I'm call me naive. I'm going to save Facebook from my, my racist aunt <laughs> now, but I was wondering, so what are some of the things Kim, that you do right now, like to try and catch yourself, catch those moments when your white privilege is showing and, or Keisha, for you, what do you do when you're around white people who their, their, their privilege comes out, their, their racism comes out, whether they mean it to be there or not? Like, you know, honestly, it's, um, it's still a struggle for me. Um, because even people of people of color are socialized, like all of us are socialized not to talk about race and uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. in our separate corners. Right. So mm -hmm. um, I think about race all day, every day, talk to my friends about it. Um, but then when there's a microaggression, I, it, the, um, the natural, the tendency for me is to kind of like clam up. But what I try to do 
is to ask questions mm-hmm. um, to, to, so that people can, um, so that the person can, you know, really think about their action and kind of start to de- deconstruct it. Um, at least that's what I would like to do. I don't always do that. And <laughs> <laughs> not. Um, she always does things. I'm always really impressed with how you handle certain situations in the department. Oh, wow. Well, thank you. <laughs> we'll have to talk offline about, because I've been disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like I can do more. Um, the reality is also, um, Lori, I heard you about how... Um, exhausting it is and so I used to be a Facebook um warrior (laughs) every single person and it just was not good for my health and so I'm also aware that sometimes I just need to also check out particularly on social media if it's someone I don't know personally Mm -hmm. um that, you know for my self-care I just need to not pay attention and I've done a good job of curating my Facebook groups and um, friends that I don't have to see those things <laughs> um, or at least people who are in support of them. <laughs> right, right. So. Well, well, I really I appreciated, appreciated her, her list, list on page 184 and, and I can, I can see, see a lot of those, those traits of the dominant, dominant white culture, culture as, as being, being um, things that, that I have, have uh, exhibited at times in the past, some that I've consciously started to deal with, um, and some that even since reading this book I've started to deal with. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the list just for the listener's sake. The list she provides says conflict, these are characteristics of dominant white culture. These are things that um, a lot of us value um, in the dominant white culture, but that can, um, and that can be good things, but um, can also inhibit uh, conversations about race and uh, movement towards racial justice. Uh, But conflict avoidance, valuing formal education over life experience, our right to comfort or entitlement, a sense of urgency, competitiveness, emotional restraint, judgmentalness, either or thinking, belief in one right way, defensiveness, and being status oriented. and I could see evidence of that in my own life of some of those things. Um, the either or thinking, I kind of really started pushing back on um, quite some time ago, really uh, exploring uh, or just really resisting any type of either or thinking and really questioning about um, where it's possible to find common ground or uh, more both and type thinking about things. Uh And one of the things that's not on here, maybe it's kind of under sense of urgency, but um, she talks a little bit about in this book, uh, our sense of time and um, just the need to stay on schedule and uh, being kind of consumed by the to-do list. And that is a perfect picture of my life. That is how (laughs) I live. Um, But I, I see it as both a good thing because I'm an extremely high capacity person and I can get a lot done um, for the... For, to help a lot of people, uh, but it also keeps me from slowing down and having conversations and getting to know people, and um, I think it can definitely inhibit the type of deep conversations that we need to have around some of these issues. Um, 
and the conflict avoidance piece is another one and the right to comfort that I've really started to push back on. I really appreciate it. Debbie Irving came to speak at our campus. And one of the things she said to the audience, she said, I know a lot of you are uncomfortable right now. And I've been in that place of being really uncomfortable. And she said that something along the lines that she now sees it as um, her way of kind of carrying the burden that her marginalized neighbors have have been carrying for so long on their own. And so um, just that idea that I need to be willing to make myself uncomfortable. And that, I think that's something that's very Christian as well, um, that we need to lay down our lives. We need to be willing to die to ourselves and to become uncomfortable to carry some of the burden for our um, brothers and sisters of color. Um, and so like at, at my daughter's school, like some of the things that have happened over the past few years, it has been intensely scary and uncomfortable to ha reach out and have those um, conversations that we've had, um, but it's always been good. And the other piece of it has been really um, the face-to-face -face thing. If you go back to what you guys were saying about social media, um, there was a, a recent thread on my daughter's school's um, website that was really upsetting um, and people were not, <laughs> were, were getting, were being hurt by what was being said on there. Um, and I just posted on there that this is not the forum to be having this conversation. And I know a lot of people are hurting. And if anyone wants to get together and talk, I'm here. And I had some people take me up on that. And it has been so beautiful to sit down with people on both sides of this issue and have conversations face to face. Um, and I think that's something that those of us in places of power and those of us in places, um, I guess we need to be willing to have, to slow down and have those conversations, which might be a good way for us to talk about, uh, Micah Edmondson's, um, sermon or talk that he gave, uh, Keisha, do you want to give us a little bit, a uh, summary of that? Sure. Um, so the Gospel Coalition website um, posted Micah's um, podcast is Black Lives Matter, the New Civil Rights Movement. Um, Micah, I had the privilege of going to uh, college with Micah and his wife, Christina. Um, she's my sorority sister. Um, so I hope that I do um, do this, uh, do his podcast um, justice. Um, but he's the pastor of New City Fellowship OPC, a Presbyterian church um, in Southeast Grand Rapids. Um, he earned a PhD in systemic theology from Calvin Seminary and wrote The Power of Unearned Suffering, a book about Martin Luther King Jr.'s theology of suffering. Um, and as I mentioned, his wife, uh, Dr. Christina Edmondson, is one of the hosts of the podcast Truth Table that um, Kim mentioned earlier, um, and uh, because the Christian Feminist podcast discussed that um, podcast in episode 66. Um, and so in Edmondson's uh, podcast, he grounds his conversation about Black Lives Matter, racial equity, um, and the church um, with three scriptures, 
Um, so Mark 11, 15 through 19, Isaiah 49, and then Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, um, to reveal the ways in which God calls us to disrupt and uh, resist racial sin. So, you know, this idea that you don't just sit and say, huh, that's really interesting or messed up, that it's a call to action. Um, he also discusses the similarities and differences between the civil rights movement and um, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and so, you know, in talking about all of those things, um, he argues that the concerns of Black Lives Matter are compatible um, with our responsibility as Christians, um, which is to, um, you know, to really love one another um, and to um, to act on one another's behalf. Um, and so one of the things that I was wondering um, is, and I think that this is a question that kind of spans um, various races, um, which is, um, should Christians participate in the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, and how, what can that, what can that look like? Um, I think the answer is yes, mm -hmm. and a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I think the, to be called to be a Christian means to be like Christ in the world, which means to give everything you can in order to make everyone around you better, their lives better, to bring an end to suffering, to bring an end to oppression, to bring an end to an injustice, because the omnipredicate God who created all things is present in every single human being, every animal, everything on earth. And to do anything less than to support the full enfranchisement and political powers, the social powers, the economic powers of, of everyone around you is, is to fail, is to, is to not recognize the divinity in, in the person next to you. I think we are called as, as white Christians to use our position of power to shut up and let people of color have a voice, to shut down uh, racist voices and in, in institutions. And it is doubly important, not just like I could do that as, as a progressive individual, but it is doubly important that I say I'm a Christian, I have to act like it. And that means support, mm. the, support the idea that yes, Black Lives Matter, they always matter. And in this particular moment this of culture, in this in in American society right now, it is important that we say yes. Black lives have value. They they have black people have the same divinity that everyone else does, and we need to call that out. It's it's not keeping someone else down to raise someone else up. Right, right. Uh, I really appreciated what, uh, several of the things that he said, but. You know, one idea in particular, he said that whether or not we join um, this particular Black Lives Matter movement, we as Christians have a responsibility to engage the ideas that they're dealing with. And he also pointed out that as of right now, there's not really any evangelical alternative to the Black Lives Matter movement. Like if there were a 
a Christian, um, really focused effort on racial justice that, um, that yes, we could partner with them over specifically partnering with Black Lives Matter, um, which isn't, whereas the civil rights movement had um, the Bible as kind of its undergirding philosophy and was, you know, a Christian um, movement uh, mm-hmm. in it, from its inception mm-hmm. um, and kind of very much grounded in a biblical theology of Imago Dei and, um, you know, the minor prophets and focusing on justice and giving voice to the voiceless. Black Lives Matter is, is not coming from, but from that perspective. Um, but they are engaging with ideas that are definitely compatible with Christian idea ideals. And when we think about what Jesus has done, as far as modeling, laying out down our lives, making sacrifices, um, and, uh, for others, I, I feel like, I agree with Edmondson that we do have this responsibility to engage with those ideas and to to partner with them. Personally, I haven't worked specifically with Black Lives Matter extensively, except for I attended one rally. I think it was after Charlottesville, where I just felt like I I'm not a I'm not a protester type of <laughs> activist. I'm more of a let me write something um, or teach something uh, or have a conversation with someone. But I just felt like I needed to kind of embody my support right. at that moment to stand alongside people um, to, in my body, physically um, demonstrate my support at that particular time. I felt like I needed to do that. But, um, yeah. I think that you bring up a really good point, though, Kim, that um, support and participation doesn't have to all look the same. So it doesn't have to be you showing up at a protest. Um, it, it is, it really is embodying the, um, principles that Black Lives Matter has laid out and the values and the commitments that they've laid out and living that out in your daily life, um, Mm -hmm. from, you know, whatever, um, your profession or your social location is. Um, and so, and because I'm not an, I'm not a protest type person either. Um, and it took a while for me to, to accept that. Um, and it's okay that we all have our strengths and there's a place for, um, for everyone in, um, in this movement. Um, and it's not going to all look the same. I've also been thinking a little bit about, um, you know, what are some of the unique things that we can do as, as Christian women, um, in the different spheres of influence that we have, um, you know, and there's, there's certain things in church structure, depending on the church that can potentially, we could see them as barriers to, um, participating in this work, uh, in a church environment. Uh, if you're in a complementarian church where it's all male leadership, um, or not all male leadership, but at least all male pastors. Um, but even, you know, I'm in a complementarian church. And so one of the things that I often think about though, is, you know, well, what, where do I have spaces of influence? And, um, in our church, they very consciously try to, even though it is a complementarian church to make sure that there are women in leadership, um, who are at the table and leadership conversations. Um, 
And so I might not be preaching on a Sunday morning, but if I'm teaching the children um, in children's ministry or I lead the women's Bible study, um, making sure that, you know, when it comes up in the Bible, we're, we're talking about these issues. Um, uh, this was, I ran the kids programming for a work, a full day workshop that we were doing on this topic for our church. And in the kids programming, I made it all about, um, how children can work for, uh, racial reconciliation and social justice, uh, as Christians in their environments. Um, and so really just looking for the spaces where we can have these conversations. I'm, you know, I know a lot of churches have done book studies with Debbie Irving, her, with her work and had her come talk. Um, so I, I, I think about those things, but I'm also, I really do, like I mentioned earlier, I struggle with, uh, the whiteness of my church. Um, and I don't know if you guys have thoughts about this, um, because, you know, there are other people in our church that are really praying for more diversity. We used to have um, a diverse panel of elders, and um, two of them moved away. Uh, one was black and one was Asian. And um, the end result was that we ended up losing a lot. When we lost the leaders, we lost a lot of the people of color in our church because mm-hmm. it happened yeah. to coincide with um, around the time of the election. And that's something that's happened in a lot of churches and when we talk about how to address that in our church, I have I struggle because I both understand the desire to have church as a safe place and um, to resist the idea of like colonialism or like trying right. to force people to be in community with me because I want to be in community with them. <laughs> but um, but it, it really grieves my, my heart because I don't feel like that's the picture of the Bible, um, you know, of, yeah. of heaven. And, uh, you know, and so, um, you know, we joke, but I, I wonder, you know, do we just need to kind of blow things up? to restart. I mean, my church has been passionate about these issues and we've, we've funded churches, church plants in Baltimore city that have a multi-ethnic, you know, mission. And we are currently funding a Korean church in our area. And I'm like, but I don't want them to be over there. I want them to be at my church. (laughs) So, um, do you guys have any thoughts about that? That is really difficult because like, the, the church that I'm going to here in Athens, we're kind of the same way. Um, it It's perhaps, yeah, I'm just going to say it's the most progressive um, church body that I have ever been a part of. Uh, but it's also the widest congregation. And some of it is, is just the demographics of who goes to church where, because there's a really vibrant, lively um a black church just down the street from from ours but uh you don't want to like drag people in off the street and be like hey you're our token come on in right um, exactly right and and there's only so much like no we really are welcoming we <laughs> really do love you that you can do before people are like no no you're a cult leave us alone <laughs> and, and i think some of it is yeah, there needs to be a safe space. I think there's definitely power in um, like all black, all brown 
like communities, all like social settings where you don't have to worry about white people. And uh, right now in, the, in our political climate, it might be that uh, black Christians need a safe place from even the most well-intentioned white Christians. And this could be the, the, the place where we sit in discomfort knowing that we really do want to have as as diverse and multicultural uh, a congregation as we can, but our wants don't come first, you yeah. know? Right. So that's that's one thing, like, I'm on the communications committee for, for my church, and one thing that we keep going back over and over again um, is how do we communicate that we're really open? And, and I have to say we've done it. We've communicated it. It's now we just have to wait until the time is right for, for people to come. Like I didn't join the church because somebody ran out in the street and said, Hey, we're really welcoming. I had to go through a dark night of the soul after, after a very public meltdown after the election. And I found the church on my own and then found it was home and they were doing the exact sort of, uh, we are protest people, uh, that kind of thing that I needed. Um, so now I think some of what we have to do as white Christians is one shut up. And I say that as a person who just talks constantly, Mm -hmm. um, but also get comfortable waiting because you can't have, faith at the point of a sword, right? Yeah. I love that you said um, to get comfortable waiting um, because I think, so when I'm still looking for um, a church home that um, has everything that I'm looking for. And I say that as someone who, you know, grew up in the Baptist church and black churches um, and even those don't have everything that I, that I'm, um, that I need. Um, but representation matters to me. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I'm looking at, um, church websites, when I'm visiting churches of my friends, um, and I don't see any black leadership, like significant leadership, um, that makes me wonder, like, so can I trust (laughs) (laughs) people? Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the waiting part of the waiting is like, as white churches are doing the work as they're, you know, refining, um, you know, mission statements and values, um, we're watching mm-hmm. <laughs> that that's how people, um, become more comfortable and, um, we need to see the work being done, I guess. Yeah. yeah. That's how we, yeah. Um, So it's not just the saying, it's, um, you know, where are you showing up? Who are you collaborating with and how? Um, I think that that makes a difference. Yeah, I I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'll share two quick stories. Um, One, one of the churches that we helped to plant is, only about a mile away from my house. I live on, kind of on the very edge of Baltimore City. And um, one of my dear friends from our church, we sent out from our church to, 
to help plant this church. And they moved from Ellicott City, which is a very wealthy suburb of Baltimore, to Baltimore City into the neighborhood where they were going to plant the church. And, um, you know, she didn't send her kids to that neighborhood school, but her church and all of all of them, they serve that neighborhood school as if their kids went there. Like they do all the things that you would do as a PTA mom, just loving on the teachers, loving yeah. on the students, volunteering for everything. Um, and uh, I just think that's a beautiful picture of following Christ to, you know, lay down your own comfort and um, to just love across difference. Um, and uh, the other story I want to share that I think is a beautiful picture of biblical unity. Um, when I look back on this past year for our church, the most beautiful moments um, came over Easter weekend where we engaged in three separate ecumenical activities with other churches. And so, you know, not having them come to our church, <laughs> but, you know, uh, we, there was a walk into Baltimore City from Catonsville um, with uh, several churches across different racial demographics. And um, just coming together in prayer and walking into the city, it was just a very beautiful picture. Um, and then also uh, we did another ecumenical service, sunrise service that weekend. And then our church service was um, done with the Korean church and my husband and the Korean church pastor did the sermon together in both languages. Um, and, you know, I look at that and I'm just like, wow, like th that was the most beautiful moment at our church this whole year. And um, that gives me hope. And it's a way forward, I think, until we can create those leadership structures and really do the work to internally to have the kind of church that I envision. <laughs> so... Um, let's go ahead and move to passing on. If you guys want to share some of the things that you think our listeners might be interested in, Laura, you want to share first? Okay. So, um, my passing on is a specific Twitter thread from earlier today from Charles W. McKinney, who is the director of Africana studies at Rhodes college. Um, it's a really powerful dissection of um, of white the people got to get comfortable we're far too comfortable as white people with systemic racism and we have to wake ourselves up to it and he um, does this really cool thing breaking it down and it's just it's very eloquently written, which I realize is a, a super loaded phrase, but I mean it um, in like the classical orator statement of a good man speaking well. Um, uh, but yeah, I've got that that link ready for for all of you listeners. You can go on the website and get it. But it's uh, Charles W. McKinney. He did this amazing Twitter thread this morning that uh, you just got to read. It's like 17 things long and it takes you a couple of minutes and it'll change your world. Thank you. I'll go ahead and share mine so that Keisha can have the final word. 
I am going to share the links to two more podcasts from Micah Edmondson, one on how white Christians can stand in solidarity with minority brothers and sisters, and the other one on white supremacy is spiritual bondage. Uh, both of these uh, podcasts were very helpful to me um, as I continued to process some of the events over the past couple of years. Keisha? Um, yeah, so I was really happy to see that Lori posted a social media link. Um, I love social media. <laughs> um, and so I posted a Facebook post that um, most likely, I think, was shared by a friend. Um, of, um, and the person's name is Jennifer Harvey. Um, she is an educator and um, an activist. And she wrote the book, Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America. Um, and um, she has a, um, a presence on Medium. So really, um, if you just put in her name on Medium, um, she has several blog posts that I think are relevant to our conversation. Um, but the link that I'm sharing um, from Facebook um, was a conversation that she was um well, not a conversation, a post that she made after um, the or during um, the Brett Kavanaugh um, confirmation hearing um, and um, talking about white feminism and how um, and the um, and the need to listen to black women um, and how, you know, heavy she was feeling, um, I guess, in with um, being a white feminist um, and recognizing that there's more um, that white feminists need to do, um, particularly in listening to black women. So, um, yeah. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Well, I think that's where we're going to be ending things. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Ellen Peterson is our intern. For Lori and Keisha, I'm Kimberly Feldman. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss the seduction novel, Charlotte Temple, The Coquette, or Female Quixoticism. Until then, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. <laughs>